0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at QuickBooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You know what you never see? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Go on. That's, that's pretty open-ended.
2: <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you know, as a journalist, I'm told to ask open-ended questions, but um you never see you never see anyone connect climate change with real yields and secular stagnation.
0: By and large, uh those are pretty separate conversations. I mean, maybe the secular stagnation part, but I definitely do not see much conversation connecting the dots between anything that's going on in interest rates or real rates or anything like that and climate.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So despite the fact that every bank in the world seems to be really high on ESG right now, and certainly you and I are on the receiving ends of, you know, tons of press releases about what banks are doing in the space, you actually don't see that many people talk about climate change from a market's perspective, which is kind of weird because if you think about the battle, the climate change battle right now, so much of it is about estimating the costs and the benefits or the costs versus the benefits of actually tackling this issue. And if you think about how you calculate cost and benefit, that's basically a market question, right? Like you have to consider how the market is functioning and at what rate the market is actually rewarding action at any moment in time in order to come up with those kind of estimates.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think this is where like I sort of like struggle with some of this. There is this widespread expectation of like ongoing environmental degradation, potentially mm. more um, economic uh, and environmental co- Catastrophes, horrendous things uh, that will happen that may be associated with climate change. on the other hand, like from a market standpoint, it still seems as though, for the most part, most of the things that get priced, whether we talk about priced in, are more on the sort of like regulatory side. It doesn't feel like there are many examples of the um of the the environmental risks directly themselves manifesting in price just yet more about pricing and the sort of regulatory response or policy response to this sort of uh ongoing threat
2: right so i know i started this conversation by saying that you'd never see anyone talk about real yields and secular stagnation and climate change but that's not strictly true because <laughs> there is one person who has done it um and they published a whole paper on the topic which um Definitely caught my eye, but we're going to be speaking to Josh Younger again today. He's a managing director at J.P. Morgan and also a a multi-appearance Odd Lots guest. I think this is going to be his fourth time on the podcast. So we're going to get his thoughts on the climate change and the link to yields, but we're also going to go into some of the recent drama in the Treasury's market.
0: And I, in, in addition to him is having done work on this, he's sort of the perfect person to connect all these dots, because in addition to being a rate strategist, managing director at J.P. Morgan, he's also a trained astrophysicist. So uh, the <laughs> perfect person to connect science and interest rates. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> yes.
2: Excellent. Um, climate science meets uh, interest rates. I love it. All right. Uh, Josh, welcome to Odd Lots yet again.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be back.
2: So uh, I mentioned this idea that when we talk about climate change policy, we generally think about trade-offs between cost versus benefit. And one of the things I'm really interested in is what traditional analysis looks like when it comes to cost benefits on on this topic. Because, I don't know, when I think about climate change, I think about the worst case scenario being that, we basically all die from global warming and, you know, World War Three breaks out over resources and the entire world collapses. So I've always been curious about how you put a sort of a, a number around those sorts of scenarios. So maybe just to begin with, walk us through how people normally do that equation. How do they come up with that cost-benefit framework?
3: Yeah, sure. So it's it's a bunch of different steps. And it's it's really about connecting a, a few related but but sort of institutionally separate fields of study, so on the one hand there's the client science itself, which is doing projections of you know, global mean temperatures and and sea level uh sea level rises and and uh various other sort types of forecasting and those tend to to go out you know fifty 100, 200 years um that is a highly nonlinear very complicated process that's usually done with supercomputers with these simulations, essentially. You can't do it with a pencil and paper. Um, So that's the climate science angle. And and then when we think about policy, the question is sort of what does that mean to humanity? What does it mean to us? Uh, And how do we start to try to quantify that? So on the one hand, you can think about the sort of more moral angle to this, which is what you're alluding to, which is, you know, people dying in wars and and famine and and disease and, and so forth. And that's, you know, obviously the 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 nut of it, but but also very hard to put numbers around. Uh, so there there's a tendency to kind of think of this in economic terms, which is, you know, as, as horrible as all those outcomes sound, that they do sort of ultimately boil down in some sense to a cost. You can put a dollar amount on it. Um, insurance companies do it all the time. And uh, the the economic impact of climate change, which incorporates all of these factors. So there's there's kind of the purely economic impacts, which is you know, are coal mines productive? Um, can we produce enough wheat? What's what's the net impact on consumption? Like things like that, and then you can have the more banal sounding mortality projections and 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 other sorts of sort of non traditional economic impacts, and, and that ultimately gets boiled down to a dollar amount. Um, and the the process of of putting those things together is, is what's generally referred to as uh, as integrated assessment models. So connecting climate science and economics um, with, some, with some other inputs as well. Um, and the goal from that exercise is, is to try to inform policy because th- there's a real cost benefit here. Um, you know, the, if we want to completely avoid climate change, we're all supposed to go back to a pre-industrial world where we don't burn carbon at all. And we live on um, sort of uh, independently um, self-sufficient farms and you know we walk everywhere or maybe ride a bike but even the bikes got to get produced so like there's a cost that's not worth bearing um to most uh, of, of the world and so between doing nothing and reversing the clock 15,000 years um and undoing all technological development there's some number that represents the acceptable cost to society and and the the, the process here is trying to to arrive at at that number um, through this rough means, There's many different ways to do it, but you're trying to get ultimately to to that break even, to that number, the, the acceptable cost to society um, and how we track and measure that.
0: So it, correct me if I'm wrong here. My impression is that climate risk manifests itself in markets in all different kinds of ways, whether you see it in commodities, whether you see it in insurance type of contracts, et cetera. But is it the case that the what's being priced is not the climate risk itself, but rather the regulatory expectations or current policies of regulatory response towards climate change? So, like, imagine an environment in which there was no climate science, really, or there was no will to action at all to address climate. Would it be showing up? Would we be seeing stresses regardless?
3: So I, I think this brings up a really important point, which is climate change is the most important and obvious example of a real market failure. So capital markets and, and markets in general are, are just really bad at long term planning and long term in this case means 50 to 100 years. Um, so uh, it, it means that the risk priced into markets is much more along the lines of what you just described, which is how is the government going to react today rather than what is the net impact considering potential action? whether or not it's enough and if it's more than enough or less than enough like what's the net impact like what's the real what's the real forecast so um there's a world in which this is actually a somewhat exogenous process to the way markets think about risk um and and that's just because again it doesn't get really priced in this is a big part of the stern and stieglitz critique which is you know market pricing is based on individual incentives that are that are themselves the product of like a single generation of people and so we're thinking about what is my preference as an individual investor over the next 50 years as opposed to what is the societal aggregate preference uh, in an intergenerational context which prioritizes to the same extent the welfare of people who are living 100 years from now uh relative to my own and so markets are really bad at that um and that's been a general critique of, of the way that climate Risk has been modeled. Um, it doesn't mean that markets can't tell you something about kind of the base case. So, so what we're doing in the, in this paper, I think, is is saying markets, because they don't anticipate these types of existential and long term risks, they're kind of giving you a sense of the baseline rather than the uh, the climate change scenario. So, they're giving you a sense of how the market would perceive risk and pricing and and uh, time preference in the absence of climate change to some extent, because it's it's not going to be get efficiently priced and that's a problem because markets are not anticipating this like extremely important risk factor, um, arguably the most important risk factor fundamentally, um, but it's convenient in the sense that you can extract from markets um, this kind of baseline time preference and other, fa- and other variables that, that lets you put that price on carbon ultimately to, to, to get a sense of what the cost benefit looks like because to get a cost benefit, you need to have the with and without like to could do a cost benefit it's the what I need to know is what's the world like without climate change and what's right. the world like with climate change and how do I mitigate that impact and and because climate change is an endogenous process to the real world but but arguably an, ex, an exogenous process to the market perspective on the real world um, you can kind of do that somewhat efficiently
2: so I mean, you mentioned the time preference of investors there. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because uh, the point that you're making about yields is that we're basically talking about the time value of money. And so they're going to factor into any big action that you actually undertake to fight climate change because it costs money. And you have to make that calculation as an investor how much your money is worth going into a a climate change initiative versus something else. So, how are you thinking about the discount rate and like, how much does that traditionally factor into cost benefit analyses for climate change?
3: Yeah, so maybe just taking a step back, like, wh- why are we discounting these impacts at all? If climate change costs, I think the number's like a quadrillion dollars over the next hundred years, why are we not just using that? Right? Why, why, why are we using this discounting effect? And from a, from a first principles standpoint, interest rates reflect uh, time preference in the sense that I can use my $100 today to go buy something or I can use it in a year. And if I'm gonna delay that consumption by a year, then there's some value to me in that, right? There's some some cost um, in giving up that year of access to my money. And so that's the interest rate I'm gonna charge for. it. So if interest rates are 1%, it means that the time preference reflects a 1% annualized cost to delaying consumption. Uh, Interest rates are observable. Like we have many interest rate uh, driven instruments. Treasury bonds are, are kind of a good example of that. There's also a, a rich and deep uh, derivatives market, which is tied to other interest rates. And, and uh, we can use that to infer time preference in that sense. So let's say we have an observation of time preference um, and, and we've consolidated that into some running rate of interest 1%, 2%, 3%, um, adjusted for inflation, because most of these estimates are done in inflation adjusted terms. Um, so then uh, what we can do is say, well, climate change is going to cost a certain amount of money every year for the next hundred years. Because that money in the future is worth less, or we're going actually talk about it probably after this, but potentially more, uh, but it's worth a different amount in the future than it is today, then the discounted future value of those damages is what I should be willing to pay today to avoid them. And so that's the social cost of carbon, which is an, an incremental uh, metric ton of carbon dioxide. What is the economic impact into the future, and what is the discounted value of that damage today? And, and if I'm thinking in terms of you know pure economics, the moral angle is, is important, but not necessarily part of that analysis. Then I should be willing to pay up to that discounted amount uh, to to avoid negative outcomes. I, I guess put a different way, we usually talk about the time value of money as how much is the money worth to me today versus in a year, but you can also think of hmm. it. Equivalently as how much does it work to me to avoid a loss in a year versus today those are it's it's symmetric in that respect,
0: so what is thinking about this framework get you like okay, so you work through this, you like calculate the theoretical damages, do this uh, sort of uh uh this time value analysis. where does it get you, and what does it tell you in terms of carbon pricing or connecting it to uh uh to your specialty like rates like where does, uh, what does the analysis say?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that models are flawed. Right. These models are very flawed, um, but we have to make a decision. We don't have the option to not make a call on this because climate change is going to happen one way or the other, and we need to take some steps to mitigate it, But or lots of steps to mitigate it. But if we're unwilling to deindustrialize, which is kind of the, the ultimate and, and only com- complete solution, then... We need to come up with what we're willing to do. And so this analysis is is an attempt to do that. And we're basically making our best guess uh, as to how much we should we should be willing to spend to avoid damage down the line. And and it's convenient as a framework um, in two ways. One is it's it really does get you to policy, right? It gets you to a set of policies that the cost of which is immediate. That you can at least justify on the basis of some framework, right? We, we need to come up with a reason why it's worth spending a trillion dollars today, um, because everyone who is contributing those tax dollars want to know why a trillion, why not why not two, why not half? You know, where did this number come from? um Flawed though those models may be, they they get us to that. And and two is at least from a more near term standpoint, from an observer standpoint, we get a sense of how the government's likely to react. So what we're not we're focused a little bit on the, the policymaking process, but there's also the more near-term impact on how government policy evolves. And to the extent that this framework, this approach, is central to the government's policymaking process, it lets us kind of think like they think and come up with a, a sense of, of what the likely range of outcomes is. And, and the Biden administration has been very clear that the social cost of carbon is the single most important number in their climate change agenda. So, you know, it, we should we should get a better sense of how to how to get behind a value of that and what the right set of assumptions are um then rather than sort of necessarily arguing over the utility of that number relative to other numbers the the last thing i'd say is this discounting effect um, it, it is possible it's kind of two approaches to this what we have focused on here is a market-driven discount rate which is really measuring pure time preference and and that's extracted from, in this case, derivative markets, but you can get it from treasuries or, or other places. Um, that's been pretty standard practice for a very long time. A common critique of that approach is that it prioritizes the, we sort of talked about it a second ago, ago—you know, the, the current generation's individual perceptions of time preference rather than societal aggregate um, intergenerational perceptions of, of time preference. And it, it's explicitly amoral because it's just a number extracted from markets. And so, what you can do is you can use that discount rate and you can take a, a more prescriptive approach, a normative approach, where you argue for what the right discount rate should be, uh, incorporating factors like, like inequality between nations and within nations, and, and incorporating the interaction between different countries. You can incorporate the risk of extinction. People have done that. Um, and so, you can use that to quantify, again, the, uh, the right number. And, and that becomes, in some sense, the thing you argue about. So there, on the one hand, there's the modeling process, which has its own uncertainties and, and legitimate critiques of that. But we have to come up with something. Uh, and on the other, you, you can sort of say, well, well, the market's saying the discount rate should be 1%, but I think it should be negative 10% because I'm highly risk averse when it comes to these things. And you can make a normative case for that. And therefore, it's worth spending more money than, than, than other discount rates would potentially Implies so it, it sort of consolidates that whole argument to a single number, which is convenient. Uh, it's reductive, but it's it's convenient for for having this conversation.
2: So, is the implication here that whatever you decide as the discount factor is going to be like as much is going to be as important as an input into your model as your climate change projections and things like that? Like, is the discount factor perhaps an an underappreciated input into our models of um, climate change and cost benefit analysis?
3: Yeah, it, it's massively important um, because of the long timeframes involved. So, if you have a 1% annualized discount factor and you compound that over 100 years, you're talking about a, a very large effect. Um, the, the thing that I, I think we wanted to highlight in this, which is in the past, there was this debate which is normative discount factors tend to result in, in lower numbers market-based discount factors at the time uh, tended to result in higher numbers so if we go back to 2007 when the stern report came out the real rate of interest over 30 years was something like three percent and because you're compounding this over long periods i, I forgot the precise arithmetic is but you know a hundred dollars in in 50 years at a three percent discount rate is is worth a couple of bucks like it, it 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 has a very strong effect on the present value of those damages and if you move that to a one percent discount factor all of a sudden you got twice as much present value damages or three times as much over 100 years so the, the debate was usually that markets are applying a higher discount rate than many economists and and um philosophers frankly uh, thought was appropriate to the problem and for all the reasons i mentioned what's happened since then is. The the long-term real rate of interest has come down a lot, and that's secular stagnation. That's, to some extent, an endogenous effect in that there could be some climate risk priced into that secular stagnation expectation. But the important observation is that this argument over whether or not normative discount factors, which are relatively low, I think 1% is the the mean of, of some surveys of economists, now the real rate of interest over 50 years is negative a half percent or something like that like the the market versus normative approach has flipped in that markets are pricing negative time preference over long periods and when you flip from a negative from a positive interest rate to a negative interest rate all of a sudden time inflates the value damages rather than discounting them so discounting is really not the right word in a world of negative real rates and so now when when uh, when we look at 100 years that hundred dollars of, of of nominal damage is worth $300, $400. Dollars, mm. um, And so it really it changes the way you think about the, the time distance to these effects.
0: So, I mean, is the simple is the simple upshot then that in a period of ultra low real interest rates, then setting aside climate, people look at uh, a period of ultra low interest rates. And also a period of uh, secular stagnation. And they say, okay, well, then this is like a natural period for the government to spend a lot of money, invest a lot in research generally, perhaps um, introduce such a sort of spending impulse and capital expenditure impulse to break us out of this uh, secular stagnation. Is the implication then that that just also applies even more so when thinking about addressing the climate threat in this economic environment?
3: Yeah, it means that the, the self-corrective element of economic growth just doesn't really apply. So if we have negative real interest rates over long periods of time, yeah, that means that we have basically an expectation of negative real growth rates in, in, in equilibrium over long periods of time. Right. And so you can sort of like the narrative version of this argument is climate change is going to cause a lot of damage but the but the cure is worse than the disease and we're going to spend too much money today and do too much economic damage today um so we're better off growing our way out of these issues like that that would be one line of argument which is we we want to let the economy grow because it will we'll, we'll all be better off over the long run even in the context of climate change related damage if we allow for for unfettered economic growth and and the The secular stagnation hypothesis and the consistency of markets with that expectation says that's just not true anymore like you're better off fixing problems today because the longer you wait the bigger the problem is going to be right and um that was not true 10 years ago at least in expectation now secular stagnation i should say has been around for a long time as a concept It, it, it originates from the late 30s so basically after every major uh every major recession there's been this wave of of secular stagnation, prognosticating. Um, it kind of reminds me of the, the, you know, the kids today, like all these kids in their phones, like they're never gonna learn how to read. Um, but it turns out that in the mid 1500s, uh, there were a bunch of people who were worried that because of the printing press, no one would learn how to write books by hand anymore. So there's always like this, this hand-wringing in the, in, the, in, the, in the presence of change, but this time might actually be different. And Larry Summers is obviously sort of associated with this argument. Um, but the combination of demographics, um, the digital transformation, a global savings glut, the rise of, of Asia, like all of these, all of the globalization trend, which is still in place. Um, you know, all of these things point to lower, at least directionally, real growth rates over time. And, and that just means, again, directionally, the cost of waiting, the cost of inaction is higher. And we're using markets because they do a pretty good job of finding stuff like that like markets are better at identifying regime change um, than than we are individually and and you can see that just because you know the 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 secular stagnation hypothesis and the implications for long-term interest rates like the the or growth rates that that's been reflected to some extent in surveys of economists for example but the transition's been very gradual whereas markets kind of priced this in in 2008 and have largely stayed in that range so um you know markets have done a decent job at least at a high level of never mind the next 10 15 basis points you know categorically they've going to done a good job of spotting this shift in the way the world grows and if we're we're shifting to a low to negative growth environment in the lead up to the really damaging impact economically of climate change um there's a much greater incentive to act now and that's reflected in in the in the social cost of carbon like if when you when you calculate even taking damages in, in sort of local um, nominal terms as a, as a given. Like, let's not argue about how we're calculating the dollar value of those damages. That's a separate conversation. Even if you take that as a given, just the way the environment and expectations have evolved means the social cost uh, has gone up six, seven times over the past 10 years. And that really changes your cost benefit. Uh, that changes the way, how much you should be willing to spend to avoid it.
2: So on that note, I mean, I was reading a um a Citigroup note by um one of their strategists recently, Matt King. And apparently City's been having a bunch of client calls with Larry Summers. And Matt King was strongly um suggesting that Larry Summers had sort of backed off the secular stagnation idea because of the recent backup in yields, which seems like, I don't know, a bit of a knee jerk reaction, but I'm curious, this idea that secular stagnation has multiplied the cost of climate change in action, how well does that stand up to the recent changes in the treasury market, the volatility that we've seen, and um, the increase in yields?
3: Yeah, so uh, most of the move in yields has been in inflation expectations. So we're really focused for this purpose on the real rate of interest. and. Over 30 to 50 years, the real rate of interest is still negative, at least if and there's some argument here. Should I use Treasury rates? Should I use tips? Should I use derivative markets? And and what we do here is we look at expectations for the the federal funds rate, the the Fed's target rate over 50 years, for example, um, and adjust that for inflation expectations. And, And the reason we do that is. Um, When you're dealing with securities, and and we talked about this back last March, um, securities have sort of different treatment under different circumstances. It's harder to hold a bond than a derivative, especially for a bank. So you're sort of baking in some of these nuances of of balance sheet cost and things. But derivatives specifically are are sort of an easier proxy. And so when we look at 50-year OIS swap rates, which is just expectations again for the federal funds rate over the next 50 years, uh, it's still negative, adjusted for inflation expectations. So um, directionally, you know, it may, may be more like four or five times over the past 10 years now rather than six or seven. The volatility in the social cost of carbon using market discount rates is, is potentially a, a critique that makes sense. But, but directionally, it's still negative. So markets are pricing in negative real growth rates over very long periods of time. Um, the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is because we're talking about 50 to 100 years, um, you know, the, the bond market stops at a 30-year instrument, but these risks go out much further, and derivatives conveniently trade 50, 60, in some cases 100 years out, and the discount rate actually starts to decline after that 30, 40-year point. Um, and there's some technical reasons for that. Um, there are some market flow-driven reasons for that, but the discount rate over 60 years is less than the discount rate over 30 years by this measure, for example. So you know, there, there is this, you could interpret that as greater risk of, of negative real growth rates over longer horizons and be sort of consistent with the demographic outlook. So that means, and that's also consistent with more normative arguments, which say, I should, to, to, be, to balance the scales, like these market interest rates are set by the current generation and the next generation doesn't get a say. So I should give them, uh, I should give the current generation a haircut when I think about discount rates and so over 60 years where I'm spanning a bunch of generations that discount rate should be naturally lower because it's just scoping in many more people many most of which haven't been born yet and so they should get a little bit of a leg up in in the relative value of their utility and and that naturally emerges from a from a market-based approach um it's kind of part of bond math to some extent you know that's also consistent with with those arguments so yeah, I, I think the, the are we in a secular stagnation world or not is a much more extensive conversation in certain ways. But, but I think at the end of the day, like this move in treasury rates and move in interest rates generally um, is much more notable for its speed than its magnitude and really hasn't changed the underlying narrative that we can extract from markets over long periods of time. And that's why I'm saying, you know, 25, 50, 100 basis points between friends, you know, over long periods is, is really not that big a deal. And, and if we were to be having this conversation in the mid-90s or the, mid, or the early 80s, we would say that's Tuesday. So, you know, we, we've gotten used to a very low volatility world. And the, the outlook really hasn't changed in a fundamental way on the basis of these moves. Um, And real rates themselves only started to adjust over the past few weeks. It's really been mostly an inflation expectations outlook.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So
0: I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around something like, okay, because of very low uh, uh, real rates expectations, however you measure it the uh, cost of not doing anything about climate change is extremely high right now. And that part I get. But like, let's say like we did enact a series of policies right now that really did jolt the economy out of something that we call secular stagnation, which seems possible. I mean, you know, you mentioned the increase in real rates been very modest, but it's possible, you know, it's like if we were to get some sort of sustained fiscal stimulus and massive capital expenditures and uh, all kinds of different things, like it seems possible at least that we could have a set of policies that would jolt us out of this whatever we've been in for the last uh, decade or longer. Does that then imply that the cost of inaction on climate like goes down? Like that's like I don't quite sort of like get that link. It seems to me it's like, okay, there's like there's like disaster waiting for us at some point within action. And either we want to do something about it or not. But this idea that's like, okay, if suddenly things started roaring and companies started spending and investing and we saw wage growth and capital expenditure, the likes of which we haven't seen, what is that? How does that then imply that somehow the cost of inaction goes down?
3: So I think it depends on a couple of things. The first is, um, is inflationary or not? Like, is wage growth what's driving things? And if so, then we're not looking at a, a, at a rise in real growth rate expectations as much as we're looking for a rise in nominal grade, growth rate expectations. And that means that in an inflation-adjusted world, which is how we do all of this analysis, it won't really show up. Um, but you could argue that there is a set of policies, whatever they are, that quote-unquote fix or help the United States transition to uh, a more balanced economy, uh, an economy with a higher um, equilibrium growth rate and, and sort of mitigate the, the, def- the, not just the deflationary, but also the, the sort of negative growth impulse of things like digitalization and, and, and aging populations and so forth. And so, you know, it, the hypo I guess is like, if we can design a set of policies that boost real growth rates for a long period of time, in a fundamental way, restructuring the economy such that we get sustained higher real growth rates, like should that change the way we think about climate change, especially because in doing so, we've, we've probably not necessarily made the problem worse, right? Like economic growth and carbon emissions are, are somewhat correlated. We certainly learned that last year. You know, I, I think there's a version of this where the boom you're describing is the conversion of the carbon economy to a to a uh, zero emission economy, and so in that context, the cost of climate change would be going down because right. we would be mitigating, and so the two things are kind of the same. Um, but if you, for example, were to to imagine a scenario where all fossil fuel restrictions were lifted and we were just sort of prioritizing growth yeah. at all costs, independent of the impact on the climate, the economic opportunity cost of inaction would go down. Um, but that's where the normative arguments come in. So that would be. Uh, something that people wouldn't want for other reasons than economics. Uh, I, I think what's convenient right now, especially from a policymaking standpoint, is the normative and descriptive uh, arguments kind of line up in the sense that the economics, um, the economics motivate action. Um, the moral imperative motivates action. Uh, and so the two things are saying the same thing. Um, what you'd run into in the scenario you describe is, is a conflict. Uh, more along the lines of what was true 20 years ago. And, you know, how the world would behave under the circumstances is kind of hard to say. Um, but that's, that's an opportunity for less economically motivated arguments for climate change action to, to take place. And, you know, I, I guess that it sort of brings in the, the, the nonlinear and existential nature of the risk. And so, like, how much is survival worth to you, right? It's sort of like, what's the value, what's the dollar value of the survival of modern civilization? I I don't think it's just one times global GDP. Um, So there's, you know, you run into this issue where economics is probably not the right framework to be thinking about that. But from a policymaking standpoint, um, the amount you should be willing to spend in a world of higher growth rates to mitigate the economic impact in isolation of climate change would presumably go down. Um, but but the there are lots of things we do as a country that are not necessarily economic purely economically motivated.
2: Right. I guess in the long run, we're all dead and the discount rate doesn't exist. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about um, the treasury market volatility, because that's been such a big topic uh, for, well, anyone in markets recently. And it comes into the debate uh, on secular stagnation and the connection to climate change, like we were talking about earlier. But Uh, More broadly, this is something that you've obviously been watching for a long time. And we had you on in the aftermath of the big March sell-off in U.S. Treasuries last year. I'm curious, what did you observe in the most recent bout of volatility? And do you think there's a sort of underlying connective tissue between these different dramatic events that we keep seeing in the Treasury market? So, you know, we had the most recent one. We had the 2020 sell-off. We had repo madness the year before. We had the big um, flash. Well, it wasn't really a flash crash, but a flash swing in treasury yields a few years before that. Do you think there's a sort of um, underlying cause between all of those different events? So
3: what's interesting about this event is I I think it's, in in an, in a weird way this is the the healthiest and most like permissible or or least worrying mm. version of a of about of volatility in treasury markets that we've had in 10 years mm-hmm. and and the reason i say that is each of the events you just described had some underlying weirdness to it that seemed to conflict with the intuition of how things are supposed to go so um when when treasuries rally 30 basis points in an hour that's inherently weird um when cash futures basis positions, the, the relationship between treasury futures and the, the cash bonds that are deliverable into them completely diverge like they did in March. That's weird. Um, when you have a complete collapse in market depth that persists for a long period of time, we've had that several on several occasions over the past 10 years. Um, you know, mark, the inability of, of dealers and, and others to, to make markets in a very liquid and safe asset. That's weird. We haven't seen really any of that here what we've seen is a shift in expectations that happens all the time from a very low base because there was a lot of pessimism early on uh, about the long-term health of of the economy and the long-term impacts of covid I, I think it's it's easy to forget now but back last april may the vaccine prognosis was 18 months at best and even that's kind of aggressive right and 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 then we and even then if the vaccine 60% efficacy that's a great vaccine. And what we got instead was 95% efficacy in November and, uh, two of them. And, and now, you know, three approved and, and more coming. So, um, we we're doing 2 million shots a day, not 1 million shots a day. I remember when, when Biden said, we want hundred million people, hundred million shots in hundred days. Everyone said, well, that's kind of ambitious. And now we're going to, we did it in 60. Um, so like there has been truly a shift in the outlook. Um, and. When you had a massive deflationary shock that was expected to persist for 18 to 24 months, and it turned out it's only going to persist for six to 12, there's going to be a big revision in inflation expectations. And that's what you saw initially. So the the most of the move in treasury yields um, has been on the inflation expectations side, even though real rates have started to catch up. Um, There has been some positioning effect, but you you don't see the same sort of, I, I think negative convexity or forced hedging is often blamed for a lot of these things and there's certainly been some of that but um that's all anecdotal and and the the price action suggests that this was really just changes in in fundamental exposures not forced activity by saying mortgage hedgers or there's some cta effect but you know you're not seeing the sort of persistent relationships and weird relationships between different assets and asset classes that you would expect if it was one of these sort of Forced liquidation or other sort of chasing your tail type events, uh, and the last thing I'd say, which I was frankly somewhat surprised to see, is even though we had a twenty basis point move in, in Treasuries on a few weeks ago, the, the the high frequency community has been persistently making markets through this volatility, and um, that's pretty unusual. Usually they drop off a lot more aggressively when fall picks up, and it's a sign of a much more healthy market right. microstructure than we saw, especially last March, and so. Like I I guess my reaction to all of this is a bit of a not a yawn, but I'm certainly not as worried as I think the headline price action would suggest. Because when you when you revise your expectations dramatically, you should see dramatic changes in prices. The question is: have we overshot or otherwise exacerbated that repricing? Or are we broadly consistent with the move in fundamental expectations? And I, I think the latter is mostly true. You know, we can point to occasional um bouts of of that sort of like position squeezes and so forth like wh- one of the things we were we were watching is you, there was a lot of carry trading that built up over this low for long environment and um when you when that happens and things start to move and those positions get pressured you usually see the biggest reaction uh in the highest carry positions so the most attractive carry trades tend to be the ones that do the poorest when things start to really reprice and you definitely saw that at times that's why for example, five-year treasuries moved the most across the curve on that one big day a few weeks ago. But that's not a fundamental thing; that's a position squeeze. But you know, at the end of the day, that's a day or two here or there. Um, I don't even mean to be too sanguine about it because you know, at some point, everybody's a convex v hedger Meaning, like we are. There's a, there's a large community of levered holders who are very p l sensitive, and a lot of them were long duration. So, you know, you, rates back up enough, and if if the Levered community is is chasing that from a positioning standpoint, it can end up exacerbating things, but but that only goes so far. And uh, I think at this point, price action is just a lot healthier than, than say, the taper tantrum or certainly March 2020 or uh, or 2011 after the the U.S. downgrade or the European sovereign debt crisis. All of these more existential-seeming events, like this is much more benign in a lot of ways.
0: What, um, so I should just note here we are recording this March 16th, 2021. It's actually a day before a uh, Federal Reserve decision, so uh, you know, listeners should note that. I'm curious about something you mentioned looking at the uh, high frequency market maker community and uh, their uh, ongoing making of such markets, even during the worst of the uh, volatility a few weeks ago. What are the specific data points? that you look like? When you talk about treasury market microstructure, such that we're beyond just looking at price, but how well the price is actually working, what are the things that tell an observer that, yes, price aside, it was uh, very volatile on a historic level, but actually it still looks like a uh, just a functioning market?
3: Yeah, so uh, we don't have all the information because a lot of these systems uh, obscure information in various ways to protect privacy, so there's anonymity concerns and so forth. But um, when we think about the the treasury market in particular, um, there's kind of two categories of trading. The first is what you would call in the old world voice trading or, or dealer-to-client trading, where, uh, say, a large central bank has a few billion dollars worth of treasuries to move, and they call up their dealer, and they say, I'd like to sell you, you know, two billion, you know, triple old fives. And dealer says, okay, I'll pay you this many basis points from from the hot run and, and markets this wide and they agree on a price. Is it very like, it, it's a much more familiar kind of human interaction kind of thing. Uh, and it happens in a very chunky fashion. We, we don't see that really. Um, th- there is some reporting of that to regulators, but, uh, and certainly if you work at a broker dealer, you, you can you know, hear about generically transactions like that. Um, but there's no systematic source of data that's available to the public that lets us track that activity. Um, but what's useful is that you know no no single dealer is going to want to hold two billion worth of triple old fives. So what tends to happen is that transaction gets broken up into pieces and and socialized across the dealer community through a variety of transactions, some through the futures markets, some through cash markets. But there are these interdealer brokers that facilitate the distribution of that risk across the dealer community, and you know how that happens in detail is sort of a a much more technical conversation, but suffice it to say the risk gets broken up and distributed, and we can observe much more granular and rich data on that process. So um, that's useful in the sense that the liquidity of the interdealer market will determine the liquidity those dealers can offer to their clients because your ability to to get out of risk is going to be directly related to your willingness to put on risk and how much you're willing to charge for that. So, so, we we do a, spend a lot of time looking at those transactions, and what we have uh, is is basically every order in the interdealer broker market um, going back 15 years. You know, buy, sell, change the price, change the amount, change the level. You know, cancel the order. We we have all that. It's basically just a, a debug output that's been piped in a text file, and uh, we can we can sift through that and try to make as much use of it as we can. And one of the things that we've done is we said. How quickly did this order react to anything else that happened in the market? Because we don't know who's placing it, but we know some fraction of the participants in that interdealer market are so-called high frequency. So how fast was this thing? And we find that about 80 to 85% of of orders now are reacting very quickly to something else that happened. And uh, we know that's uh, very likely to be high frequency because when we plot up a, a histogram, if we look at the distribution of timing of those events, there's a very strong peak at eight milliseconds. And, and the question is, what's, wrong, what's significant about eight milliseconds? Well, that's the time it takes for an email to get from New York to Chicago. So that's people checking, checking the pit, coming back to New York, trading the cash market. So you can see these little features that are indicative uh, of, of what you think you're seeing, because we, again, don't know who's trading. We just know that they're trading. High frequency is one of those things that, like, relies on, on Strong and resilient market, infrastructure, uh, market microstructure to be profitable, and that's the liquidity that's on the screen until you need it and then it's off. And, and so when we track that, you know, that goes from 80 percent of the market to 40 percent of the market under periods of real stress. This past few weeks, it really hasn't dipped that much. It's gone down to maybe 65, 70 percent, but it's it stayed pretty resilient, and that means that your on-screen liquidity, what you see in the market as available to transact, is really there. And, and that has not always been true. And so like, that's a sign of healthy market infrastructure.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common...
2: So we've been focused on treasury market microstructure and the plumbing of the actual system. But if we look at it from a more macro perspective, I'm wondering, at what point do you see the rise in yields or I don't want to see say treasury market um, dysfunction, because, you know, as you put it, the, the recent bout of volatility wasn't nearly as bad as we'd seen um, in some previous um instances but at, at what point do the current events in the treasury market become a problem for the fed or at least something that it feels it has to push back against
3: yeah, so i think the, the the memory of last march is that not just that rates were moving a lot but that price discovery was broken so you know something that was issued 3 months earlier than another bond that were functionally the same instrument with the same credit were trading at very different prices And that's only if you thought the price you could get was really the price and so the fed is not specifically concerned with rates rising um and especially if it's inflation expectations moving up i think that's that's a sign of healthy recovery um their concern from when we talk about market functioning we're not talking about volatility in isolation we're talking about price discovery really and the question is can markets assign realistic prices to securities in a realistic period of time and a real and a decent enough size to facilitate the broader functioning of the market? or Are they introducing sort of the risk of a market failure in which there just is not enough intermediation capacity to, to keep things flowing? Um, so, you know, that's, that's more, that's much more existential. That's much more concerning. Um, there's not a real sign that that's imminent in any respect right now you, you see some some dispersion in the pricing of securities but we think that's more attributable to the details of how banks invest with their portfolio and potential regulatory changes which are important but like to have a, an event like last march you need two things you need an underlying vulnerability and you need an event of sufficient magnitude a shock that's big enough to kind of expose and widen that crack and so the covid shock in the context of balance sheet constraints on bank market making was precisely that so the risk had been there all along it just took a big enough shock to expose it and, and widen it and turn it into something much more uh much more uh concerning uh, now i think on the one hand we don't really have that vulnerability although we'll see what happens with with the regulatory outlook we're, we're likely to get some color on that or kind of some clarity on that pretty soon um, but more importantly, this just doesn't seem like the kind of shock that's of sufficient magnitude to drive a wedge through that vulnerability in the first place. So you, you just don't have the same set of weakness and you don't have the same magnitude of shock. Um, so I, I hate to say everything's going to be fine because that's their famous last words. Um, but we could have a big move in in rates. And I, I think it's important to, to say again, like that's happened before and will happen again. Um, markets reprice. As the view changes as the expectations change, because the world changes, and sometimes dramatically, but so long as the market is reflecting accurately that underlying fundamental shift in expectations, there's nothing to be quote unquote concerned about, at least from a market functioning standpoint. Now we may not like the way the world's going, and you know inflation running away is, is clearly a problem that the Fed would have to deal with, but but that's a macroeconomic issue that's not a market's issue so you
0: You did kind of allude to this, the sort of upcoming uh, sort of regulatory questions, of course, after um you know, in the in the wake of the crash, the market crisis, whatever um last March, um one of the uh, things the Fed did was basically make it, I guess you describe it. Such that uh, the banks could hold unlimited amounts of treasuries without any sort of like penalty on their uh, total assets. So again, men- uh, the proviso: of when we're recording this, we don't know exactly what we'll hear by the time uh, this comes out. Can you just like walk us through the tension here and a sort of like how we should think about this question of the uh, SLR and how big it could be regard you know depending on how the Fed uh, acts with extending this program.
3: Yeah. So, so SLR, the supplementary leverage ratio uh, is a fairly blunt regulatory instrument. So it basically says you as a bank need to hold capital uh, relative to the overall size of your institution. So it doesn't matter what you have, however much you have of it, make sure you have 5% in capital um, at the holding company level and, and 6% for your, your bank operating companies. So the issue there was that back last March, um, there was just a ton of demand for liquidity and people had been holding treasuries as a cash surrogate so the, the thought was treasuries are risk-free they are highly liquid they pay a yield so instead of just earning cash returns I'm going to buy a five-year treasury and if I need to sell it I can sell it at low cost and the issue is that banks facilitate that sale because the vast majority of trading happens with bank affiliated dealers and those dealers are subject to these regulations. Um, i I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that balance sheet constraints were strictly binding last March, meaning banks simply ran out of capacity. Um, they had plenty of capacity actually it's kind of a misnomer like the the s l r was never explicitly binding last March um, so if it wasn't binding, then what was the problem and you know i've been out there talking about how balance sheet constraints were were a problem, um, but if they weren't strictly binding then then where did the stress come from and, and the answer is it's less about your institutional constraints, and more about your local constraints. So if you're assigned a commodity and asked to distribute it among different businesses, so bank has $100 worth of balance sheet, and some of it goes to the treasury desk, some of it goes to the credit desk, some of it goes to the equities desk, some of it goes to the repo desk, some of it goes to the FX desk, you have to to allocate this scarce commodity, but you need to make sure that at an institutional level, you have enough or you don't go over budget. So that means those assignments are pretty rigid and it's hard to reallocate so i, I think there's also a, a sense that banks are highly efficient in their use of their balance sheet and they are uh like we were talking about over long periods but not necessarily over short periods and so you can run into a situation where a treasury trading desk or a repo desk which uses a ton of balance sheet and is very volatile in its use of balance sheet can run into local limits that are part of the business management and planning capital planning process um, but the institution's got plenty of excess, but they are constrained. And so they start to act like the institution is balance sheet constrained, even though it's really just a local effect. What the SLR carve-outs did is they said, those treasuries don't contribute to your leverage exposure. So treasury desk, use as much as you want, basically. Like, this is not gonna be a problem, uh, you know, don't go crazy and, don't, and make sure you know how much you got. But like, if you need balance sheet, you know, your need for additional balance sheet is not going to affect my capital planning at an institutional level, at least as long as these carve outs are in place and therefore you can be much more flexible with how that desk operates. And so they don't run into these constraints as frequently. That's about mitigating market failure risk. It's not about reducing leverage constraints in real time. It's about clipping the tails of these more problematic outcomes, especially at a period of time when the trajectory was towards an acceleration in the use of balance sheets. So it was the it wasn't the level it was the path of growth and the way that that was affecting local behavior. Um so those rules were were put in place to avoid those those con, to avoid those market failure risks. They've been largely effective at doing so in combination with Fed purchases. Um but they're going to expire at the end of this month. So the question is, you know, are they going to get extended? If so, for how long and in what form? And are they going to be extended in a format and there's a distinction between how uh, the bank operating company, which is the deposit-taking institution, and the dealer, which is part of the holding company, how they are separately affected by these rules. Um, but, but I think that this specific issue of market functioning risk is a dealer issue, which means it's a holding company issue, which means the question is, on the one hand, you know how, how is this going to be treated after March 31st? Uh, and on the other, how is that going to affect the way that these institutions behave internally and manage their balance sheet exposure, because that's where the, the sort of real risk factors lie in practice. The issue here is that we're coming into the end of this period with less buffer at an institutional level than was true early last year. So banks would be entering a balance sheet constrained world or at least a world in which SLR is in principle binding with less buffer. That means more rigid internal allocations and economies of balance sheet which means greater market functioning risk. Uh, and so, you know, that's a scenario where, in principle, if if this keeps going, you could run into a world where there is a need to sell and raise liquidity on the part of the real economy, the non-banks. And, and it would be much harder for, for dealers to intermediate that under those circumstances. Again, you'd need a shock of sufficient magnitude to, to really exacerbate that and turn that into a, a real issue. But the risk is greater, all else equal if banks have less flexibility in the way that they allocate that balance sheet.
2: Okay, well, clearly a lot going on in the Treasury market, um, and we do have that Fed meeting coming up. We are recording before it, so it'll be interesting to see how everything shakes out. So thank you so much, Josh, for coming on for your fourth All Thoughts appearance and also for connecting uh, the world of real yields with climate change, which not many people do. Thanks.
3: spanning 15, 20 orders of magnitude in an hour. (laughs) That was
0: great. (laughs) Thank you so much, Josh.
3: Yeah, thanks very much.
2: So, Joe, I found that conversation very interesting, a little bit technical, but I do think this broad idea that the way we think about climate change or the way we make these cost-benefit calculations is tied to estimates of the time value of money, the discount rate, as much as our actual estimates of how climate change is proceeding and climate change damage. I think that's really interesting because- I don't know, like the climate change question seems to be framed so much in science, which, you know, for obvious reasons, people talk about it from a scientific perspective, but people don't really talk about it from an economic perspective, except in a broad sense that, well, you know, you have to trade off economic growth for restrictions on pollution and things like that. They don't actually get into things like interest rates um, all that much, I think.
0: No, it's super interesting because it does feel like There is this, you know, I think a lot of people would accept this premise that something like climate change, which is slow moving, global in nature, affects everyone, but also at very sort of like indeterminate times in the future is like a very like hard thing for like markets to price. But the idea of still using market pricing concepts to try to get an estimate of the cost of inaction which is i guess basically what we're talking about the cost of inaction is a really sort of like um it's a really interesting exercise
2: yeah and also just the broad point about how the last time we did a really really big climate change report was the the stern report back in gosh i can't even remember when that was was that like 2006 or something like that
0: yeah, i think it, i think it said 2007
2: 2000 okay America. yeah like And back then, interest rates were completely different to what they are now. And you know, his estimate of how much that changes the calculation is just something that well, I certainly hadn't thought of it before.
0: But I guess, like, I still have some issue with this idea that's like, okay, like there is this like looming humanitarian catastrophe. Maybe we're already seeing aspects of it played out, uh, Mm. playing out, and. It's like either we're going to we want to do something about it or not. And so it's kind of weird still for me to wrap my head around this idea that, well, that would have been, uh, you know, a certain cost in 2007. But the real interest rate environment (laughs) has changed from 2007 to 2021. And so now there's like a total um, sort of like different cost benefit analysis. But I guess still just this idea that's like, all right, if we accept certain premises about the cost of capital, how much is it costing us? to wait is uh, sort of a useful useful frame in terms of thinking about policy.
2: Yeah, you can see there's something distinctly awkward about, you know, telling someone we're sorry that your house is underwater from climate change, but it's because the interest rate changed between the last time that we made an estimate of how much it would cost to fix this problem. And now like there's something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he hinted at that like future generations or people who aren't born yet don't get a vote. But it's like, oh, we were going to do something about climate, but uh, the real real interest rates were sharply positive at the time and things were growing. And so the time value of money discounted 50 years from now, like it wasn't really that much. It does sort of like raise some like, I guess, kind of uh, awkward. awkward
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess Josh mentioned this, but there's the sort of financial imperative and the moral imperative as well. Right. But maybe. I don't know. Maybe by focusing on the financial imperative, that's a way to get more people involved in the whole project. And, you know, maybe the the ends sort of justify the means. Right.
0: Yeah. And again, like the rules are going to come from somewhere. Right. Like that's sort of what I took away. It's like someone how politicians around the world address this. Like they're still built things like carbon pricing or other regulations that may have some impediment to slow the economy or may, uh, you know, need some uh, guess of like, OK, how much do we invest in X or Y? Like the rules have to come from somewhere. And so trying to like get ahead of this by like thinking about how these models might get shaped as AI useful exercise.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, Shall we leave it there? Yeah, let's leave it there. OK, this has been another episode of the All Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.